0: And then there were none. <laughs> look at them all. Anybody else going? I did suggest maybe I'll go and join them and let you get on with it instead of preaching. It looked quite a lot of fun they've got planned out there. Right. Without much further ado, let me explain what's going to happen now. I'm going to talk for a while. We're going to do the, almost the morning kind of back to front. I'm going to talk for a little while. Then we're going to have a time of communion. I'll explain at the time. Then I'm going to talk for a little bit longer and then we're going to have our sun worship at the end. Um, First of all, I just want to start with a verse from 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, where Paul the Apostle says this, 2 Corinthians 2, I'm going to get you flicking around the Bible quite a bit this morning, I want to use Bible truth just to impact the relevance of what actually Easter Sunday is all about. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, just a brief sentence that's always impacted me and I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the years. I love this verse. You just say, I won't read it all, just simply, The thanks be to God, he says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Let me just say that again. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That word triumphal, that's quite a definitive word, isn't it? That's quite something, quite a statement. He leads us in triumphal procession. What does that really mean? I looked up the word, I just typed the word triumph into Google. I then discovered you get pages and pages and pages of motorbikes and lingerie. (laughs) Who'd have thought? I had no idea. So I didn't click on any of the links. Um, Actually, yes, I did. I looked at some motorbikes, but I left it there. but then, so then I turned to the dictionary. I had an idea of what triumph means, but I just wanted to get underneath the bonnet of it a little bit, just to be sure. And triumph simply means, ultimately, it means a categorical victory, a complete and utter vanquishing, a complete and utter conquering. And so when Paul's saying that Jesus leads us in triumphal procession, he's saying, actually, as they used to do back then, he's parading his defeated enemies as the ultimate spoils of war. Look at what I've trounced. Look at what I've been victorious over. Look at what I've conquered. Look what I've utterly, completely crushed. That's what he's talking about, leading us in triumphal procession. Not just leading us in triumph, but actually leading his spoils of war, his defeated enemies, to go, look at what I've beaten. And so what would be good this morning, just to start with, is just to ask, who or what are these enemies? Who or what has he defeated? Because besides the obvious events, Jesus, this man of Nazareth, died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, and suddenly the tomb's empty. Besides what we see on the surface, we just need to ask, what actually happened on the cross, and what actually happened in the tomb? And that's what we're going to do. But in order, the best place to start, therefore, is actually to understand the size of the victory, we need to understand the size of the enemy in the first place. Can we have the slide up, please, Paul? I'm going to get you flicking through your Bible, I did tell you I would. Ephesians chapter 2, some of these will be up on the screen. Some of them are using backwards, back to front. But Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses. Again, this is Paul the Apostle again writing to another church in a place called Ephesus, in what's now Turkey. And he's describing... Where they used to be in terms spiritually, where their positioning was spiritually before they were saved, and he says this, and he starts describing what we discover are some of our enemies. It says verse uh, chapter two from the beginning. He says, "You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world." There's one. Following the course of this world, also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about the devil. I'll talk about him in a minute as well. But then he also continues, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He's describing three enemies there that are, are set against us and set against God. God the world, the flesh and the devil, that famous phrase effectively. It's a common phrase we've heard before, the world, the flesh and the devil. And he's describing all three there. There's another um, enemy I want to describe later, I want to come to in a moment. But let's look at these first three, the world, the flesh and the devil, because between them sometimes we can feel besieged from every side. But actually I'll suggest quite a lot of the time we're pretty unaware of the attack and the undermining that's going on all around us and that we can succumb to. Let's just look at those one at a time, just briefly. The world. What does he mean by that, talking about following the course of this world? Well, this world, the word world has a bit of a kind of two layers of meaning. First of all, the world as in the planet we live on, it's a wonderful planet, isn't it? I think it's a brilliant place, I think it's an awesome planet. It's albeit broken by the physical and spiritual damage that we've inflicted upon it. But also, apart from this material world, underneath there's also another, there is the world of culture. There is the world around us that's a different meaning of the words, different definition. There's the world of culture with all the values and the ethics that it announces and creates. Culture around us. Cultures are different wherever you go. But they all have different elements that are good, that are neutral and that are also bad for us. There are elements of our culture as we just generally see it today. Modern, you know, Western UK. Much of it is good. There is beauty in the culture around us not all bad. There is good. There is beauty. There is kindness. There is justice. <laughs> Much of it is neutral as well. Food, food's lovely, but it's pretty neutral. Maybe it depends on who's cooking it. I don't know. <laughs> but food's generally, food is food. Currency is neutral. Currency is just a thing. Money can be used for good and can be used for evil, but money of itself is pretty Neutral. So much of our culture that we see around us, the world around us, is good. Much of it is neutral. But also, there are elements of culture that oppose God's ways. And those voices, they can be loud. They can be tempting. And they can be pretty sly as well. There are beliefs around us that people buy into, or sometimes we may buy into. There are beliefs that certain scientific theories trump everything else. Even though actually they remain as theories, they're proclaimed as truth. That's, that happens around us, that's, that's the belief, that's a lie that's around us. There's other beliefs that you have to look a certain way, you have to be a certain shape. Why? But people buy into it, and maybe some of us do. There are beliefs that to be fulfilled you need more money, or more sex, or fame, or more followers on social media. That's the only way you'll be fulfilled. People buy into that. There's the belief that there's the priority of the individual, of the self, over everybody else. It's almost this, this kind of self-proclaimed um, right to be considered as royalty. Do you realize who I am? It's all about me. That's just a lie that actually is quite, quite insidious and is present in the culture around us. And while this, this world has many, many wonderful opportunities and things to celebrate, we must also recognise that there is an enemy that lurks in its shadows. The course of this world. That's just one. Let's come to the flesh next. Let's, let's look at flesh. Because as if the world around us wasn't enough to contend with, we have our own part to play. The passions of the flesh, giving in to our desires. Because we do have desires, and they are good things. The desire to eat is a good thing. If we didn't have that desire, we'd probably die quite quickly. The desire to eat is a good thing. The desire to serve is a good thing, isn't it? It makes sense. The desire for sex is a good thing. The desire for love is a good thing. But these are all, these are all good desires that have been hardwired into us by our creation, by our very being. It's what's built into us. They're good things. But these desires can be fed in the wrong way. And as a result we can become, for example, we can become gluttonous where the desire to eat has been twisted into a way it was never meant to be. Does that make sense? The desire to serve can get twisted into us becoming self-serving or we can become weak-willed and always giving in to other people. That's not what it was intended to be. The desire for sex, while initially it can be a good thing, actually can be twisted into becoming where we are defiling our bodies in ways that God never intended suddenly it's got twisted and become something else. The desire for love can get twisted into us loving someone or something more than our creator. Suddenly a good desire has been twisted into something that is for evil. Our own nature by birth is a self-defeating one. No matter how hard we try to shake off its urges, we can all feel that from time to time, can't we? It's what the Bible calls the power of sin, and every time we yield to it, we prove our own responsibility and our own demise. We can't just say it's nothing to do with me, it's not on my plate. Actually, we've got a part to play in this as well. It's our responsibility as well. There is a sickness in our soul and it's something we're incapable of fighting in our own strength. So immediately, this is building up quite a mountain. The, we've got the world, and we've got the flesh to contend with. But then if, as if that's not enough, we've got the devil as well. He's real. Jesus believed he was real. Jesus contended, contended with him. The devil is a very real person. Behind the world and the culture that we see, it's very interlinked with the world itself. Behind this culture that we see, it's deeply connected with another layer. And behind those crooked elements of culture, that like I mentioned there are also elemental forces. The Bible tells us that as well as angels, there are other cosmic beings that themselves were the fallen angels themselves. And these cosmic beings are by nature in permanent rebellion to God's kingdom. They exist, they're very real, and they're determined to undermine everything that God stands for and acts upon. And the leader of this pack is called the devil. And the world, the culture around us, is his playground. It really is. What's interesting is that Satan actually isn't his name. Satan is his title. He's referred to as Satan in the Bible. But particularly when you look in the first couple of chapters of the book of Job, when it's the longest story where we get to be introduced to who the devil is, (coughs) the definite article is before Satan. He's actually the Satan. It's actually his title. He's the Satan. It's best translated as the accuser. That's who he is. The devil is the Satan, the accuser. And his greatest weapon is not actually outright attack. It's just twisting truth for lies. You see it throughout the Bible. God speaks, the devil questions. Did he really say? Would it really matter if he just twists it into something that not, sounds nice, but is actually quite insidious? He's not, he's not turning <coughs> God's statements into questions that help seek the truth. Questions are good. What does that really mean? And trying to get to the bottom of it. He's not doing that at all. He's asking questions that are traps. He twists truth and he turns it into nice sounding ideas. For example, something we hear in our culture these days, it's you can do what you want with your body. It's your body. so you can, no, no one has a right to say what you do with your body. That's a, a something we hear. And actually on the surface, it sounds, oh yeah, it's my body. It's not anyone else's. I can do what I want with my body. It sounds good, doesn't it? The trouble is when you realise what the biblical truth is, that our body is a gift from God, that is wonderfully made in order to reflect his glory, suddenly changes how we use it. Does that make sense? So what sounds like a nice thing on the surface actually is a twisted truth and is actually a lie. That's what the devil does. In John chapter 8, Jesus, particularly verse 44, Jesus himself talks about the devil and he says, there is no truth in him. There is no truth in him and he is the father of lies. And the accuser's primary method of attack is not from the front, but from the side. His favourite weapon is not coming at you face on with this big baseball bat of obvious evil. What he prefers is coming from the side with this scalpel of a lie. This scalpel of an idea, this seed of falsehood that sounds okay, but actually leads us on a path that will ultimately bring decay rather than life. That's what he does. Now, sitting here, we can all think, yeah, 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 I can spot it a mile off. But think about this. ISIS warriors don't do what they do because they believe it's wrong. They do what they do because they believe it's right. And there is a whole road of half-truths that get you there. Do you see? It's very easy to point the finger. But actually, we can all buy into half-truths around us that sound brilliant, but actually... When we, when we compare it to the Bible that we proclaim is utter, utter truth, when we see what's going on underneath the surface, we can then step away and go, that's a lie. And We've got to be very aware that the devil is on the prowl. He's out to catch us out. He's out to trap us with things that look wonderful. As, as the easily distracted and short-sighted humans we are, without outside help, we're actually easy pickings. We've got to be very aware of this. He's an enemy. So There's the world, the flesh, the devil... But if that wasn't enough, there is another enemy. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 26, Paul again, he describes death as our last enemy. Death. And we see death's effects everywhere. None of us get to live forever. Sorry to break the news. None of us get to live forever. We can't avoid it. No matter how many pills you take, no matter how many gym memberships you pay up for, you can't avoid death. But it even goes beyond that. Death is built into everything. You actually look at the um, the scientists when they observe the, the basic laws of thermodynamics, they observe that actually everything else is set to decay too. Everything. Mountains get worn down to pebbles. They don't grow. See? Mountains get worn down to pebbles. Even the sun and the stars have their own life expectancies. The very universe has an expiry date. It's getting colder and more and more distant, not warmer and more and more life giving. The universe is expanding, and as it does, the way energy works, it's losing life, not gaining it. Even the universe has got an expiry date. Death is an unavoidable force in this existence of ours. And so. Even if we were able to fully um, discern and avoid the dangers within the world, within the culture around us, and even if we were able to resist temptation to do whatever would damage us or others, the flesh, and even if we could spot the devil's lies from ten paces every time and run away from it, even if we could do all that, we'd still die and we have no say in our final destination. As humans... We are surrounded by enemies, and it transpires we are also our own worst enemies too. So, with that in mind, what on earth happened 2,000 years ago to overcome these enemies outside and inside of us? Shall we have a look? Yes. Luke chapter 23. Let's read the account of what happened to Jesus. Luke 23 from verse 13. We're not going to have to read all of it read some of it. Luke 23, verse 13. Jesus has been arrested. He's been spending three years in ministry as a grown man, proclaiming himself to be God, um, performing amazing miracles, pointing the way to the Father, explaining what's going to happen, that he's going to die and rise again. Nobody really got it. But there were many people who did not like what he said. They refused to accept him as Messiah. They refused to accept him as the one they were waiting for and proclaimed him as an infidel, effectively. And so he got arrested by the Roman authorities on their behalf. And so verse 13, Pilate is the governor. He then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. A third time he said to them, he keeps trying, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent. You imagine this rabid crowd, can't you? They were urgent. And they uh, were demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So they take Jesus away and they hang him on this Roman cross where in utter agony for hours he asphyxiates. As it hangs it crushes your lungs and he asphyxiates the, most, the slowest, most painful death imaginable. And then verse 44 and it was now about the sixth hour in new money that's midday. About midday And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And actually you see in the other gospel accounts, another phrase was used at the time, surely this man was the son of God. In that moment, we see this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who declared himself to be God, who did many miracles, who fulfilled hundreds of prophecies that were written hundreds of years before, about this coming rescuer. He could not have, could not, could not have conspired to fulfill these prophecies, but he just did by his own natural uh, way of life and doing what he did in his actions. The Bible is saying that this man is God himself who entered this broken, this messed up world. He freely broke its conventions of culture around him. He walked against the flow without a misstep. He stepped into this enemy that is the world and he did it in the flesh. Not as a ghost, not as an apparition, not as this this spiritual entity. He did it in the flesh, in a body just like ours with all its passions and desires. And he was tempted In every way, but never sinned. And thus became the only member of humanity to ever live a perfect life. And this God-man, fully God and fully man, he also faced down the devil, our third enemy. Colossians chapter 2, there's a wonderful word in there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, says, just before that, it talks about Jesus set aside our record of debt, Just by our own responsibility, he set that aside as well, nailing it to the cross while he's hanged there. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's talking about the elemental forces again. He disarmed them and put them to open shame. Here comes his triumphal procession, by triumphing triumphing over them in him. Let me read that again. He set aside our debt, nailing to the cross, and he also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That word disarmed is quite something. It's a complete and utter trouncing. See, F.F. Bruce, he's a theologian, he says this about that very verse. He says this. says, Jesus was suspended there. He was bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness. and The rulers and authorities, the elemental forces, they imagined they had him at their mercy and flung themselves upon him with hostile intent. But far from suffering their assault without resistance, he grappled with them and mastered them, stripping them of all the armor in which they trusted, and held them aloft in his mighty outstretched hands, displaying to the universe their helplessness and his own unvanquished strength. Now they are disabled and dethroned, and the shameful tree has become the victor's triumphal chariot, before which his captives are driven in humiliating procession, the involuntary and impotent confessors of their overcomer's superiority. Jesus took on the devil and he crushed him. But not only did he take on the world, not only did he take on the flesh, not only did he take on the devil, he took on, flesh it's, uh, took on death itself on our behalf. Eternal God who never began and by nature never dying, he entered our decaying, dying world and at the right time, He willingly stepped into death himself, suffering not only its physical torment, but also the immense cosmic pain between him and Father as holy, perfect Father saw his Son carrying our dirt, carrying our shame. He bore our sickness for us. Jesus took on the world, the flesh, the devil and death in a way we never could, so that we could participate in that very victory, simply because he loves us. Hallelujah. We're going to spend a bit of time in communion now before we move. We're not going to leave him on the cross, don't worry. We're just going to spend a bit of time in communion. Rachel and the band are going to lead us in a song as we do. I suggest we just actually just start singing rather than having a, um, a time of quiet before him. We we'll just start singing. And when you're ready, during the song, just, we have tables at the front and at the back. And so Jesus had died. The thing is it's wonderful for us to look back we've got the wonders of hindsight we've got the wonders of scripture we can look back and investigate what really happened in that moment on the cross. For the believers at the time Saturday was a dark dark day. The one they thought was their saviour the one they believed was their great rescuer, was dead, it was over. All their dreams come true, proved to, to, to be confetti, it's gone. To the believers at the time all was lost, their Jesus, their beloved Jesus was dead and buried, we thought he was God, we thought he came to set us free. Now he's in a grave. Easter Saturday for them was the darkest day they'd ever experienced. Just to help kind of catch a bit more of that. I don't know how many movie fans there are in the house but there's a a set of studios called the Marvel Studios and they've been making a tremendous amount of very big budget, very flashy films, superhero films, the Marvel films. They started 10 years ago making a lo- large number of films over which there's this long, long story has been going on. And for 18 films, over nearly 10 years, for 18 films, they were setting the scene with our favourite heroes, winning the day in lots of mini-stories, mini-two-hour mini chapters, if you like. Captain America, Thor, Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man, all these people, Iron Man, I love them. Doctor Strange, there's lots of them. There's lots of them, plenty more. Black Widow, our favourite heroes have just been winning the day time and time and time again. But over these 18 films, there's been clues that someone is coming. There's this big baddie. There's, there's been some pretty big baddies along the way, but there's the big baddie. This guy called Thanos, He is a complete and utter 10-foot tall psycho. And he's got this crazy idea in his head, he's completely, completely crazy. He believes the universe is broken, the universe is in trouble, the universe is overpopulated and the only answer for him to be the great saviour, to win the day, he needs to get hold of six sources of power and when he gets hold of those, with the snap of his fingers, he can remove half the population of the universe, including half of humanity, including half of our favourite heroes. And so film number 19 came out a year ago and he arrived, this great big baddie arrived, and over three hours, our favourite heroes, Incredible Hulk and Captain America, they have to try and stop him, gathering these six sources of power, and stop him from snapping his fingers to remove half the population of the universe, including our favourites. Now if you're into these films, you've had a year to watch the film, because the spoiler's coming up. (laughs) Put your fingers in your ears, but by the end of this epic, breathtaking three-hour film, He does what he sets out to achieve. He gets hold of the six sources of power. He snaps his fingers, and half the population of the universe, including half of humanity, turns to ash before our very eyes. It's a devastating sequence, it includes half of our favourite heroes who we've cheered on for all those years, we see them turn to ash before our very eyes. And the final line of the film is Captain America is one of the few that is left, he's a God-fearing man and he's on his knees and the final line of the film is, oh God, and it fades to black. What they set out to avoid happened. Their worst fear happened. The last thing we wanted to see happened. It looked like the villain had won. And So in the past year, and as far as Marvel Studios are concerned, we've been in a bit of an Easter Saturday. It's this dark moment that it's just like, all is lost. There's no going back. We've lost. It's over. But next Thursday, a film is coming called Endgame. Endgame is coming. I will be there at midnight on Wednesday night. I've got my ticket book. Me and Stephen will be there at midnight on Wednesday night. We will be there. The worst thing imaginable happened. Oh, God, it's happened. The darkest moment ever has actually occurred. There's no going back. It's finished. The end game's coming. And somehow, through great sacrifice, and I know some more of our favourites are going to die, there's going to be some tears in that cinema. But I know at the cost, great cost and great sacrifice, they are going to turn the tables. The darkest thing ever has happened, but end game is coming. And for the disciples, it's the same. Our, our Saviour, Jesus, is dead. The worst thing imaginable has happened. Oh, God! But Sunday's coming. They didn't know. They were in the middle of Saturday. But Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. What do we get to celebrate on Sunday? Well... 36 hours later, as daylight was barely creeping into the early hours of that Sunday morning, history recalls that Jesus burst from the grave in complete and utter victory. The Gospels are overwhelmingly reliable historical eyewitness biographies of Jesus. Non-Christian experts, modern non-Christian experts, rate them as far more reliable than even Julius Caesar's own war journals. These are reliable historical documents. And the issue is not the gospel's authenticity. The issue is their content. Why? Because people don't like what they have to say. And what they have to say is that Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Yeah, get a bit Pentecostal. It's all right. Matthew 28. Should be excited. I need a handkerchief. Preach it, brother. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, let's read about that morning. It's a historical account of that morning. Matthew chapter 28, from the beginning, it says Now after the Sabbath, the Saturday, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. What a brilliant first word. He's out from the tomb. First thing he says to him, greetings. I love it. It's brilliant. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Jesus had risen from the grave. Hallelujah. Amen. Did he need to rise from the dead? Think about this. Could he not have stayed in paradise with the Father and we still have this surprising and upside down victory accomplished in a broken body that hung upon a Roman cross? Even if it didn't look like it, we just heard about some of the victory that he achieved on the cross. Could he not have just left it there? Well, besides that being not a very good looking finale, And besides the fact that there were promises made through the prophets hundreds of years before that he would rise again, plus Jesus' own promises that he wouldn't stay dead, there's also more reason as well why he needed to rise again. Firstly, the empty tomb confirms Jesus as God's holy one. Proves it. Proves it. He bursts from the grave. It's like he's exactly who he said he was and he's achieved exactly what he set out to do. Secondly, Jesus rising from the dead secures his victory over death itself as well as the other enemies. Because it's one thing to face death head on. It's another thing to burst through the other side. Yeah? Thirdly, Jesus' resurrection guarantees ours in the afterlife. Hey, Without it, we'd have to take his word for it. With his resurrection, we can now know for sure, life after death is guaranteed for you and for me and anyone who places their trust in him. Fourthly, fleece is another one. It's just simply the greatest demonstration of God's power. <laughs> Regardless. The empty tomb proves that in Jesus, death is defeated. The empty tomb proves that in Jesus we can find hope and rescue and a guaranteed, mind-blowing future safe in him. At the beginning of his letter to the churches, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through his resurrection he's even secured our ability to be born again. It seals and delivers the victory. There is a reason why those defeated, grieving Hiding disciples became the beginning of a great public revolution whose members now count in the billions and is still going strong today. There's a reason why. It's because they met with the risen Lord Jesus and people continue to meet with him today. Jesus' utter victory over all that stands against him has enabled the birth of the most magnificent movement this planet has ever and will ever see, the church. Jesus, his church, what that means is Jesus is gathering himself a family. Anybody who's a member is just set free through him from anything that wants to hold us down, that wants to hold us back, and he's achieved it by his own sacrifice and his revealing of power. Our enemies may still linger, but they're just, they're now in a place where they're just desperate for any semblance of scraps from the victor's table, and they're not getting any. Because in Jesus, we share in this victory that's been utterly and exclusively secured for us. Jesus beat the world at his own game. He entered it, but was never swayed by it. He celebrated what is good, family and food and fun and friendship, but he refused to cower to its pathetic wisdom of what does and doesn't fulfill you. He came in the flesh, and he beat the flesh by resisting its temptation in every way, living the life that we can't live, so that we might still receive the benefits of such a perfect existence. But he also beat the devil as well. He disarmed him and his cronies on the cross in such a way that the devil has been utterly and eternally humiliated. But he also beat death by bursting through the other side, guaranteeing his promise of life with a capital L, which starts now, but is also for the beyond and our future resurrection is guaranteed by Jesus having done it first. The world, the flesh, the devil, and death, they all picked a fight with the wrong foe. And he won. And he won. We have the band back up. We're going to sing together just for however long it takes. But as we sing these songs and celebrating Jesus' amazing triumph, let me just ask what about you? What about you? Have, you? have you accepted the need for a savior? Accepting Jesus as a savior starts with the fact that you accept the, that you need one in the first place. Have you accepted that you need a savior? And if so, have you accepted Jesus as the only one to have conquered our enemies, including our own self-defeating nature? Because it is possible to walk against the flow of this world around us. It is possible to die to ungodly passions, the flesh. It is possible to resist the devil and spot his lies. And it is possible to never fear death. And it's all because of Jesus. So would you like to stand? We're going to celebrate him. But during these next few songs, those of us that know him, let's just celebrate. If you don't know him, please at the very least just be open to the possibility that this person we've been celebrating and talking about, he really did die for you and he really did rise again that you might live. Let's sing. Let's sing.